You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. We're currently working through a series in the book of Titus called A Healthy Church in a Hectic World. And each week over the past couple weeks, we've looked at uh, Paul's instructions to Titus that are aimed at strengthening uh, various groups within the church in Crete. We've been in Titus chapter 2. We've looked at Paul's instructions to leaders in the church. We've looked at Paul's instructions to men and to women and their unique roles in the church. Last week, we talked about bond servants and how we can apply that to our work. And in all of these instructions, we've seen that Paul's motivation and intention is to, to, in, to order our lives in a way that adorns the gospel. That is, to, to order our behavior in a, well, in a way that would tell the story of our belief, that our behavior and our gospel that we believe would be in line with one another. And this morning, we're moving into a text that gives us more general instructions for Christian living. Paul's kind of summing it up and putting it all into context for us. It's merging into a bigger vision for the church to be a holy church in a hectic world. And here's our main takeaway, our main point for today that I want you to walk away with, is that a healthy church is a holy church, and a holy church is a missional church. Okay? A healthy church is a holy church, and a holy church is a missional church. I was proud of that little intro there. So it came to me at the last minute, so hopefully it works. But that's where we're going to look at today. Uh, Let's read back, starting in verse 11. We're going to focus in on verse 11 through 14 for the sermon today. Starting again in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Our text here is bookended by two appearances. This word appearances, that you could think of the word to reveal or to uncover. It's the, speaking of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it, it's referring first to the revelation of his life, of his earthly ministry, of his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Paul says that grace has appeared to us in Jesus Christ. And this is really the starting point and foundation for the Christian faith. We believe as Christians that God has revealed himself in real time and space in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why for the past couple months, we didn't do it today, but we've been confessing together the Apostles' Creed, a summary of this belief that Jesus has come, that he's revealed God to us in real history. Right? This is the story of the gospel. We can go read eyewitness testimony about this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what Paul goes on to say in verse 11 is that this grace of God appearing, the gospel of Jesus, has brought us something. It's, it's been beneficial to us. It's brought us a sort of gift. And so what has it brought us? The text tells us it's brought salvation for all people. Now, 
I love this qualifier, all people, because it's not salvation just for, for the do-gooders. It's not just salvation for those who can get their act together. It's not just salvation for the Jewish people. It's salvation for every kind of person, every tongue, tribe, and nation. This good news is not just for a select few. It's for the nations, for the world. It's for all peoples of the earth. Now, if you've been around evangelical culture, really if you've been around any sort of church at, at any time, you've heard this word, salvation. It's a familiar one for us, isn't it? And oftentimes, we think of salvation uh, in a couple of ways. Typically, uh, we think of salvation as kind of something that happened to us in the past, like I was saved. As people, people speak of that, I was saved from my sins. Or some of us think of salvation as something far off in the future, that, that I've kind of prayed this prayer or I've invited Jesus into my heart. And so one day in the future, I'm going to be saved from the wrath of God. It's a, it's a future-orienting thing. But salvation is not only here in our text, past and future, it's about the present, Right? Paul says that this, this gift of grace that has appeared, it has brought us salvation, and this salvation trains us, essentially he says it trains us for godliness. It trains us in holiness. We could say that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Certainly that is true. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's what we're going to look at in our text. And that one day we will be saved from the presence of sin completely. That there, there are multiple tenses in this word salvation that we need to have that understands it as a past, present, and future gift brought to us by the gospel of grace. Now, when I grew up, my view of salvation was primarily concerned with uh, past and future. It was the forgiveness of my past sin, right? I, I, I prayed a prayer so that when I died, I could go to heaven. But what happened was there was this gap then in my life that I really didn't know. Okay, I've, I've, I've prayed the prayer. I've been forgiven. Uh, one day, I believe I will go to heaven. But, but what about life now? Like, what about the in-between? What about this present age there was, there was much talk of being saved from the past penalty of sin, but there was little talk, at least in my experience growing up, about being saved from the present power of sin in this life. And I think that that's because for many, salvation is only about uh, what we would call theologically justification and glorification. But we lack a, a salvation that includes the doctrine of sanctification. We won't get in too much into the big words, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what it means today. So what happened was that within this gap, uh, of, there was something else that creeped in to teach us how to live as Christians. For, for me, in my context, it was, it was kind of the teacher of legalism. How many of you grew up in kind of a legalistic or moralistic environment, right? When salvation is only about past and future, what fills the gap? And for us, uh, for, for many in my context, it was legalism. Um, it's an extra-biblical code of context that was kind of uh, culturally uh, specified in my unique you know, town and city where I grew up. And, and once Jesus got us in, then it was kind of on us to kind of keep it going, right? Grace got us in the door, but compliance to this culturally selective set of standards would keep us in good standing. For us, I would summarize it as no drinking, smoking, cussing, dancing. That was our kind of four quadrants of, of legalism. 
Other tribes might have other dress codes, literally dress, you know, no, I'm just kidding, right? like dress to your ankles or, or some other way that, okay, Jesus gets you in, but now it's kind of this uh, standard of morality that we've selected that kind of keeps us uh, going. This is kind of what we think of when we think of holiness in these camps, that it's following these certain rules, it's staying away from these certain taboos. You see, the gospel was for non-believers, but holiness and transformation was kind of based on a cultural code of conduct, and it seeped into legalism. This mentality tended to separate itself from the world, to withdraw from those unclean neighbors and friends who were sinners over there. And for those who grew up perhaps in this camp, when there was a real struggle with sin, there was so much pressure to meet the standard of legalism in front of you that there was a propensity to hide, a propensity to kind of neglect to share honestly about what's really going on in your heart. You see, the dirty little secret in legalism is that no one uh, can measure up to what they appear to be. No one can meet the standard. And beneath the hardened and polished exterior of legalism, there's deeply fearful and insecure people, often ruled by hidden sin. You see, the God of legalism is never satisfied, always wanting more of you, always disappointed, never ending in his demands. Some of us grew up with the gap, the present age, being dominated by this. This was how we saw holiness. Others, um, I think fewer of you, knowing many of your stories, but some grew up perhaps in, a, in an environment where license took the place. So there's past sins forgiven, future life in heaven, and now it's kind of like, well, let's just enjoy this life, right? Let's just, you know, kind of sin so grace can abound. We could call this license. Um, uh, others see really that, that Jesus, you know, kind of Jesus took care of me, so really in this life it doesn't matter that much to, to what I do or my, my sin because grace abounds. I prayed my prayer, I took my confirmation class, I go through the rituals of perhaps taking communion or whatever the priest wants me to do, and I'll be good when I die. And this is a, a, a more prevalent thought among cultural Christians who, that we might call nominal Christians, people who are Christian in name only, people who perhaps grew up in the church but have kind of got their token uh, issues of salvation and they kind of live life, not formed by the gospel, but formed by the culture. And so there's, there's kind of an assent to Jesus, maybe a recognition of some of his rituals, but really when it comes down to it, what's shaping their life, what's forming and training them in this in-between time is the culture, whatever wind of culture is blowing about. And this is why oftentimes you see people who on their Facebook status have Christian, but then all the pictures and, and updates you see are nothing but hedonism. Right? Or nothing but pursuing desperately the things of the world. That's why maybe some of you who are skeptics or you've experienced a church, you've met people who proclaim to be Christian, but really their life is just full of hypocrisy. That's absolutely uh, true, and we have to own that. There are Christians who have lived a life of license. You see, the God of license is always promising joy through worldly pleasures and pursuits, but never able to deliver never able to give satisfaction. The pursuit must always continue and it leads to enslavement. It leads to addiction, to the never-ending chase of satisfying the soul. At first, it feels like freedom, but then you quickly realize it only leaves you empty and ashamed and addicted. 
You see, Paul in his letter to Titus is clearly concerned with the church pursuing holiness. That is behavior that adorns the gospel. He spent a good portion of this past chapter giving specific details and nuance and contextualizing what that looks like for each individual within the church. But the way in which we as the church are to pursue holiness is neither legalism nor license. Rather, Paul says we are to be trained by grace. The church is a holy people by their union with Christ. We have been saved from the penalty of our sin, adopted into God's family, and now as his beloved children, we are learning what it looks like to be children of God. We are learning the family way. And Jesus, when he ascended in the gospel, part of the promise of the gospel is that he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to dwell within us, the church, to work and to will and to form Jesus in us, to set us apart for sacred use. That's what the word holiness means, by the way, is to be set apart for sacred use. We'll come back to that here a little bit later. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I'm going to, I want to give us four things from this text, kind of defining what does it mean that the gospel, that grace is our trainer? What does it look like to, to not look to legalism or license in this meantime, but what does it look like for the gospel to train us? Four things from our text. First, training in the context, uh, train by, training by the gospel happens in the context of secure, loving relationship with God and his church. All of our training begins from a place of deep union with God. How many of you grew up playing sports and athletics? As, as, you don't have to raise your hands. I know that can be you know, <laughs> hard for some of you. But, but I grew up with coaches um, and trainers, if you will, who oftentimes were very harsh, would call me names, would uh, not just me, but all, they, you know, it wasn't just me, but all the little sixth graders and seventh graders in athletics. It tells how weak we were. And oftentimes for me, there was this negative connotation to a coach or a trainer because they'd been so harsh. There was a fear-based relationship where I, I felt like if I didn't perform, coach was going to kick me off the team. And that was honestly the reality. My position on the team was often felt like it was on the line. Now, the gospel or grace as a trainer, as a coach, to teach us to live in the way of Jesus is different than that kind of coach. You see, in the gospel, with grace as our trainer, we start off on the team. We're in God's family. We are loved completely. We are loved fully. We are forgiven completely. All the status and, and belonging as God's kids, you start off with that as your very identity if you're part of the church. And so as we talk about tra training and growth, right from the get-go, we get to take a deep breath. I want you to take a deep breath, take a deep breath, and say, if I'm in Christ, I'm fully loved. You don't have to say that part. I'm just going to say it over you. Um, I'm fully accepted. I'm on the team and so now I'm free to grow, and my status and position is not on the line. We get to be trained by grace, and it starts in a context of security and belovedness. 
you see this at work in our families, that one of, one of the, the best ways for children to grow and mature is not when they feel like their status or place in the family is on the line, but when they know they're loved, where they can make mistakes and learn and be taught, and there's deep connection that gives them the safety they need to grow up. We need that as human beings, and God gives us that in the gospel. We start off our training being fully accepted. Because the love of the Spirit is poured into our hearts, we can trust the Father. And we also can see that God is forming not not just our relationship with Him, but in the church, He's creating a family where where it's a safe place for us to love and grow. A safe place for us to confess our sins, to confess our weakness. And, And if you go back to that uh, that, family, that church that's formed by legalism, it's not a safe place. It's not, it's not a safe place to share. I know sometimes people have shared their sins or shared their prayer requests or shared something dear to their hearts only to have it met with, oh my gosh, you struggle with that? Well, I'm just, I'm just going to go to this holy huddle over here, right? And maybe something really dear and significant to your heart was shared or put out there and, and you felt hurt. You didn't feel like it was a safe place. The gospel gives us a safe context to learn and grow. And by the way, we should expect that as sinners being adopted and, and, and defined only by Jesus' as saints, we are going to need to grow. So we shouldn't be surprised when brothers and sisters are struggling because we're all adopted sons and daughters learning, and learning the way of Jesus. Don't be surprised. You need to grow. I need to grow. It's part of God's plan and process. Second thing that we see here is that we're trained by the pattern of Christ. We're trained by the pattern of Christ. Um, So from this place of loving union with God and, and, and adopted into his family, we're empowered to start acting as Christ would have us act. The Spirit works in us through the word of Christ to form Christ in us. So as a church, our activity and action is increasingly looking like Jesus. Remember, these past few weeks, we've talked about that our behavior does matter to God. God does care about it. And the standard for behavior, the example and the model, the pattern for behavior is Jesus. And so where else would we look to learn how to behave other than the gospel, the place where Jesus is revealed? Um, I want to give you a few examples of how how this might work out. Uh, if, If someone is mistreating you. Let's say that there's a, a, a boss who's picking on you. They're, they're, they're being mean to you. They're taking out on you. Your fleshly response to that, your human old way, your pattern of behavior of responding to that is probably going to be to get even with them, right? To maybe be passive aggressive with them. Maybe to just avoid them and, and, and leave them alone. Or maybe to, to try to get them fired or, you know, usurp their authority, whatever it is. All that to say, our typical response to being mistreated is to get back, to get even, to kind of follow uh, when we take a punch, to give a punch back. But what if we're being trained by the gospel to respond differently? In fact, in the gospel, what does Jesus teach us to do? He teaches us when we are persecuted, when we have enemies who harm us, to do what? To bless, not curse. We wouldn't learn that apart from Jesus' example. Um, there are many other ways we could look to the gospel to see how God is calling us to live. We're trained by the pattern of 
Christ. You see, holiness is not conforming to the pattern of some 1920s evangelical culture. Holiness is a grace-motivated conformity to the pattern of Jesus in this hectic age that we live in. Look at, look at Paul's instructions in verse 12. He says this, Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. He's essentially instructing us here to put away our old patterns of behavior and learn to live in a new way that imitates God. Not that tries to become God, but that imitates God. God wants us to be God-like. And what better example do we have to, to live as God designed than Jesus. And so, church, we have to keep looking to Jesus as our pattern. How do we view money and possessions? We don't need to look to maybe all the time like Dave Ramsey or some American figurehead talking. We look to Jesus. How do we use our power and leadership? We don't necessarily need to go to the latest and greatest leadership books. We look to Jesus. How did he handle his power and, and how did he do his leadership? How do we treat those who are caught in sin? We don't always need to look to our legalistic parents or our patterns of, uh, you know, that we learned from our, our past. We look to Jesus. How do we treat the vulnerable and marginalized among us? How do we use our gifts and our talents? You see, what happens is that as we see Christ in the scriptures, as we behold him in the gospel, in his teaching, in his miracles, life, death, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit works of adoration and convictions, conviction in our heart. We see real life in Jesus. We see that there's something in him, in his way, that compels us. And it calls us to live distinctly. We recognize at the same time as we behold him, that the way we have lived and the way we have walked is not in line with him. It doesn't look like him. And, and the beauty of this is because we are beloved, because we are doing this in the context of a safe relationship with God, we can be honest and we can repent. We can say, Jesus, my life doesn't look like yours. Our life together, maybe even as a church corporately, we have, we've not looked like you. We've not represented you well. Would you forgive us? Would you lead us to your grace? And would you teach us to walk in a new way? Corporately, and personally, the pursuit of being a holy church requires training by the pattern of Christ. Now, third thing I want to mention is that gospel or grace-motivated training uh, is motivated by gospel adoration. If the pattern of Jesus is what we do and what it looks like, uh, gospel adoration is why. It's our motivation. And I mentioned this briefly in, in the prior uh, section, but... We're not called to simply imitate Jesus at an external level. Kind of like if Jesus said, okay, I did it. Now you need to do it, right? Like I, I did, look how good I am, right? Uh, you need to be like me. That's not what it is at all. But it's that our heart's affections are being changed. As we look to Jesus, we are seeing and beholding something beautiful, something worthy of our worship. We're seeing something that we say, there is really life there. And from the inside, our desires are changing where we want to act in a new way. You see, when we behold Christ's life, his teaching, there is certainly a pattern to follow, but there's also a kind of following that flows from loving communion. 
that flows from adoring him, that flows from not just a demand to meet that pattern, but a desire to walk in that way. Uh, Just an example of this, a few years ago, I was on sabbatical after a busy six years of church planting, and I was talking with a sabbatical coach or counselor, and one of the things that I identified that was kind of led me to even feeling the need to take a sabbatical was I was just getting hounded by the expectations of people uh, on me as their pastor. I don't know if you've ever been in, if you've ever been a parent or in ministry, you kind of, you get this a little bit. And I, I, you know, I, I planted this church, had no full-time ministry experience. I was a teacher. There were certain expectations on me as a teacher, but certainly not the expectations I felt as a pastor. And I had just, you know, people coming in to the church from all different backgrounds, some people expecting this, some people expecting that. And then my own projections onto others, what they expected of me, it was just exhausting. And in my worst moments, it, it made me want to leave ministry. Because I just wanted to shed all those expectations. I just like, can I just be Josh? Can I just love Jesus and love people and not have to deal with all your expectations that you put on me that you want me to be? And one day as I was praying in this sabbatical, probably about midway through, and I was kind of getting ready to tell God and my counselor all these reasons why I should just leave ministry and, you know, go work a quiet job off in the country. Uh, that's kind of the, was the daydream for a while. Um, I was reading in the gospel, and, I, and I begin, the Holy Spirit began to bring to mind, I think it was Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, or some, I can't remember the exact text, but the Holy Spirit began to bring to my mind and, and help me recognize, hey, do you know that Jesus knows what it's like to have all sorts of false expectations put on him? And I began to think of all the ways that the disciples put expectations on Jesus that he, he did not live up. You know, he, he was not what they expected. I began to think of the religious leaders. I began to think of even my own expectations of Jesus and, and all of those. And in that moment, the Spirit helped me recognize Jesus knows what it's like to have, be a leader and to have expectations put on him. He knows that. And yet Jesus was called by the Father to stay faithful. And there was something in that moment about me recognizing that Jesus could see what I was going through. I don't mean to make my particular journey like this. I'm not saying it was the worst or worse than yours. But in that moment, my heart resonated with Jesus. I had adoration for him, and I realized he's with me. I needed to see the gospel of Jesus. I needed to see him for who he was and have my affections changed. You see, it's not only the pattern of Jesus, but it's the power of Jesus. And there's so many ways, so many ways that the gospel can intersect into our life to change our affections, which redirect our actions. There are other times when we've not renounced, perhaps as Paul tells us, we've not renounced evil. In fact, we've welcomed it into our hearts. And we need not only be told to turn from sin, but turn to something, right? Oftentimes when we're misbehaving, when we're acting out, we're trying to meet a genuine need in a, in a disingenuous or sinful way. And we don't just need to stop doing over here. We need to behold and see that what we're longing for is really found in Jesus. This is why every week... Every, hopefully every time we get together, in some way or fashion, we're going back to the gospel 
because we believe that in the gospel is the power to change us in this present age. We don't look to license. We don't look to legalism. We don't need some other standard. We have the gospel, and it's for us, both to save us now and in the future and in the past. See, the person who's struggling to forgive doesn't just need to be told, well, forgive, but they need to see in the depths of their heart how Christ has forgiven them when they were most unworthy of that. And they need to have it transform their affections so that from the heart, they can do the hard thing to forgive that friend or family member as Christ has forgiven them. The person clinging to power and possessions doesn't just need to be told, Quit, let it go. But they need to encounter Jesus who is full of control and yet emptied it so that he could die and surrender his life so that others could have salvation. You see, we could keep turning the gospel diamond, if you will, mining its infinite riches. There's many other applications we could think of, but the point is this. God has given the Spirit to us so that when we go to the gospel, when we look at Jesus and how he's been revealed, it would be sufficient for everything we need to change. That it would shape every part of our life. This is part of discipleship, part of growth, is that we're increasingly allowing the gospel to shape every aspect of who we are. Not only giving us a pattern, but internally working in a way that is powerful. And finally, number four, if you're taking notes or if you're timing me, you, you can, you know, I told you four points, so here we're laying in the plane. Um, finally, God, the grace as our trainer is for the sake of gospel witness. It's for the sake of mission. The word holiness that we talked about at the beginning, it's both about purity being set apart, but it's also for a, a use as the church grows in holiness, it's doing so amongst and within a hectic world. Holiness is not being transformed or changed for the sake of puffing up our ego so that we can look at ourselves and say, look how good we are. Look how pious, you know, pious we are. Look how holy we are. It's not for the sake of the holy huddle. Holiness shaped and brought about by the gospel is for the sake of gospel witness. It's for the sake of mission. God is setting you apart. He's making you different than the world, almost going against the ways of the world for the sake of the world. Look at verse 14. It says this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ has redeemed us, and he saved us for the sake of his mission. That is, through us, he would reveal himself as Savior King to the world. You see what's happening here? Let me, let me bring this all together. You have been saved from the penalty of sin, adopted into God's family, brought into the church. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work through the word in the church. It's training us for godliness, right? 
And all of this is happening amongst non-believers. We're living in neighborhoods. You're going to your workplace. You're, you're loving on people in sports teams. All of this transformation process, growth in the gospel, is happening amongst non-believers. And the way that God has designed it is so that as we are being changed, not that we are perfect and have it all together, but as we are honestly being transformed and growing in Christ's likeness, the world could watch and they could see. They could see the way we love one another. They could see the way that when we blow it, right? When I'm playing basketball and I'm a jerk, I don't just be a jerk. I come back and I say, I'm sorry, man. That was, that was not cool. That was not who I want to be. But I thank God that he forgives me and I ask for your forgiveness too. Right? They, they see us repenting of sin. They see us seeking holiness in this way. And when they ask us, why do you live like this? Why do, you, why do you treat me like this? Why do you guys get, why is there 10 cars at your house every Wednesday? You know, well, what's going on? We don't just look and say, well, because, you know, I try to be a good person. And, you know, or I'm just, you know we, don't, we don't say that. We say because of Jesus. We live in a way that it can only be explained by the gospel. You, you see what's coming together here, is that God wants to make us holy as a church so that we can be an accurate witness to the world around him, the world around us. Holiness is missional. Your transformation, your, your engaging in and willingness to say, Jesus, grace, train me. You're, you're going back to the gospel and letting it give you a pattern and a power to, to change. That is missional. It's not missional if we just shout words at our neighbor and yet our lives look hip, hypocritical. And our lives are not transformed. Again, we're not saying be perfect, but we're saying be being saved. Enter that process and be honest with those around you in the world. Be a witness to share that they too could get in on this, right? They too could have this salvation. They too could be saved from the penalty of sin and be being saved and one day be saved from the presence of sin. Paul wants his church to be zealous for good works. Not good works that earn salvation, but good works that display the grace that God has given them. This is what it means for grace to be our trainer. And I want to close just by encouraging you not to just sit on the sidelines, not to just kind of get your ticket, get saved, and then wait for some far-off distant future, but to realize that the gospel wants to train you today so that you can be a part of the, of the story of redemption that's happening to all nations no matter who you are, no matter where you are, as you enter into this process of sanctification, as you say, God, I need to be saved from my sin, not just the penalty, but from the power of it right now, God begins to use you as a witness. He begins to use us as a church, a place where people say, why do those people, there's something different. There's something distinct. I don't get it. Sometimes it offends me, but I'm also curious. And we get to point to Jesus because he's the pattern and he's the power. And it's all for the sake of his mission. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at redeemerrr.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.